0: Glad to have you here. That's it? That's it. <laughs> okay, <Hey. laughs> we got it. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll let Tracy do it tomorrow night, okay? <laughs> <laughs> got an important guy like me, no more introduction than that. <laughs> you can tell I'm real humbled in uh, all of that. Type of thing. All right. Tonight uh, we start on uh, Genesis. Five lessons, the first to five lessons, dealing with parts of the first nineteen chapters of Genesis. And uh, this evening we'll be on uh, uh, really staying in the first chapter. But uh, then again, as you uh, know, my normal mannerism, we're not going to stay there very long though uh, it's the uh, first chapter that we're going to cover mainly. And uh, tomorrow morning we'll go into chapters, parts of chapters 2 through 4, then take another chunk, 5 through 8, that type of thing. So as you can see, I'm not going to cover any particular part all that much, though tonight it'll be a little bit more specific because of the nature of uh, the text that I'm going to be covering, that is in chapter 1. And it's hard to know just what to read uh, on, uh, well, it'll be hard on any of these messages uh, to know just how much of the text to read, uh, what to read, things of that nature. So let's just pick up uh, in beginning uh, with uh, verse 1, and I'll read a few verses, probably, uh, well, I'm not sure. Let's just read a few. I'm not going to read the whole chapter i 'll uh, go, be going through parts of the chapter in the process of the message, but uh, and i 'll read parts of it, but we 'll just read a few verses to start in verse uh, one in uh, not in the beginning, but uh, just simply in beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. <coughs> And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and called the light day, the darkness he called night, the evening, and the morning were the first day. Let's just stop our reading at that point. That covers day one. I'm going to be going back through in a little bit and covering the other days briefly and Uh, mainly dealing uh, with a verb that's used 27 times in the first chapter to show you something about it. Now, as I said, I probably wasn't going to stay here very long, and uh, this is uh, where I'm going to leave and go to another book and then another book. I want to talk about beginnings for a little bit. Now, as you notice, I took the article out. Jim did the same thing earlier, and he'll do it again tomorrow probably. If he doesn't he's wrong, because the uh, article of course doesn't uh, belong there it's just in beginning it's an indefinite uh, way of expressing a beginning uh, it really saying in a beginning is not necessarily correct uh, it's just in beginning uh, there's there's more than one beginning there's a beginning for the heavens and the earth there's a beginning for angels there's a beginning for man uh, there's other Beginnings, But this is at a point in past time at, a, at the beginning in view here, it would go back to at least prior to the time of uh, the creation of man and prior to the time really of a lot of things. It's uh, at this point in time, what happened? God created really all that exists out there, the heavens and the earth. And immediately... Scripture switches to information on the earth. There's a a certain amount of information in Scripture about the universe at large, not that much, but just enough to let you know what is out there. Say uh, David looks into the heavens, talks about the stars, things of that nature. And uh, we know from... uh, Finds, recent finds by astronomers today uh, a, little bo- a little bit about what is out there. Our uh, solar system, for example, is not uh, necessarily that unique. There are multitudes on top of multitudes, or literally, possibly, probably, and undoubtedly, uh, now I've used a lot of big words, you know I'm brilliant. But uh, there are undoubtedly billions, of other solar systems throughout this universe and possibly in, in fact, undoubtedly in our own uh, uh, galaxy. Now, the immensity of the, of the whole thing, I didn't mean to really go into this, but I'm here. Let's talk about it just a minute before we get back into beginnings. The immensity of the universe uh, within our own uh, uh, galaxy, That's your Milky Way you see out there. It's kind of a spiral shape. And uh, within this, there are an estimated 400 billion uh, suns, like our sun is a medium-sized star. And there are an estimated. Now, they estimate they can only see a small fraction. And from the small fraction, they estimate the remainder. So, estimated in the neighborhood of 400 billion. For many years, uh, they looked at 100 billion. Then, no, they upped that to 200. Then uh, an astronomer, I wish I could remember his name. If I heard it, I'd recognize it immediately. He died 10 years or so back, one of the foremost astronomers in modern times. He said, no, they're more like 400 billion out there. Well, whatever's out there, it's a lot. I mean, 400 billion, 200 billion. Uh, stars, some much larger, some smaller than ours, and uh, astronomers as of late have uh, made an amazing discovery that uh, people that uh, knew something about the Bible would have known all along, because there are other messianic angels other than Satan, that is, angels placed over other, uh, what should we say, uh, there are other provinces, we could call the earth a province in God's kingdom. And there are others, and uh, we, they're not, we're not given any indication of how many, but they're out there. So there had to be other uh, solar systems, such as ours, revolving planets around these stars. But uh, now the scientists can actually see them. For a while, they looked at blockages of light. Now they can see them. And our system is not all that unique, but our system is unique insofar as Uh, God is concerned uh, relative to an angel he placed over this earth, along with numerous uh, ruling angels, at a point in uh, past time. Now, it's another beginning, beyond the beginning that we see in verse 1. In beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. Then, you have angels coming into existence. Now, some want to date the angels prior to the uh, creation of the heavens and the earth, some after I'm not, I'm not even getting into that. God didn't necessarily create them all at one time, but that's all beside the point. So what we're getting at here, in the in beginning, he created all that's out there. Then he places angelic rulers over provinces in his universe. Now, bear something in mind if you want to get to the immensity of the universe. We live in one galaxy. There are an estimated billions of galaxies out there as well. It's a big place out there. Do you know how far it is between galaxies? It's millions of light years between them. It's 100,000 light years across our own. Light travels at 186 and a couple of hundred miles per second. That's pretty fast. Light traveling that fast to the nearest star, about four and a half uh, years it would take to reach the nearest star to our sun. Now our sun, a medium-sized star, that's another sun or another star. And you get out there, you're talking about two, or 2,000 to get out to sun that you can see the light coming from. Some of that light's been traveling, the light you're seeing, it's been traveling since prior to the... Uh, Uh, what we're reading about, some of the things we're going to be reading about in Genesis. When some of that light was traveling from that star, it was uh, Christ hadn't been crucified yet. That's what you're looking at out there. But let's get on with beginnings, and I just wanted to call your attention to what's out there, the immensity of a universe that we have that God created in in beginning, and then immediately he homes in on the earth. And the Bible is about this earth, about an angelic ruler that God placed over this earth. That angelic ruler rebelled. And then we have a destruction of his kingdom, which we're about to read about. We have a restoration of that kingdom, that is the earth. Then after God restored the earth over six days' time, he created man to take the place of this angelic ruler but what happened man falls now God works six more days to restore man bring man back into the position for which he originally created him and guess what one day man is going to replace the incumbent ruler and it's the man Christ Jesus with a contingent of co-heirs ruling with him now, as I stated this morning, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God's not going to change his mind concerning anything about the reason he called this earth into existence, placed a rule over it, it, is about to place another ruler, the reason he created man, the whole of the matter. God has a plan. That plan will be carried out, and it's going to be carried out on this earth through principally using the nation of Israel Christ emanating or or coming out of this nation through the man Christ Jesus the second man, the last Adam and it all is right out ahead of us I've told you the whole story of scripture I might as well let it go at that point and I haven't even gotten out of the first verse of uh, Genesis and now you know the story that's nice but uh, let's let's stay with something a little different. Uh, I didn't really mean to come up here and do this. I just did it, and I get to talking, and I go out here somewhere. I can see, well, maybe they're interested in this. I'll just do it. All right. If you go uh, turn over to the Gospel of John, and uh, we're going to stay on the thought of beginnings just a minute. Now, I've quoted uh, the first couple of verses and uh, so forth uh, before. Now, let me say something about Genesis and John. I want to spend a little bit of time there in just a moment. But uh, in Genesis, we have a restoration of a ruined creation over six days' time and God resting on the seventh day. That's in the first 34 verses of Genesis. The the chapter break, uh, chapters uh, 1 and 2 in Genesis, it should uh, should take place after the third verse in chapter 2 because that's where the subject changes. That's the end of the septenary structure that's set forth right at the beginning. And we should have the same thing in the Gospel of John because it is the parallel to Genesis. Genesis belongs exactly where it is. The Gospel of John is in the wrong place. It should be before Matthew, or however said the other three Gospels are uh, set up in uh, this book. But in John's gospel, if you're all there, in beginning, same way, we're starting out just like Genesis. Now, in Genesis, it says, in beginning, God created. But look, what it, look how it states uh, the matter here. Uh, before I read it, let me call your attention to this once more. Scripture repeats itself and adds commentary to that which it's repeating. That is, it goes over the same material again, and and it provides commentary when it goes over it again. You'll see it right here. Bear in mind, in Genesis, in beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now John's going to take several verses to tell you about that and provide commentary about it. In beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in beginning with God. We haven't gotten to creation yet yet. Genesis said, in beginning, God created. All right, but look down in verse 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things are literally, more from the Greek text, all things came into existence through him, by him, and apart from him, nothing came into existence which exists out there. In him was life moving on down talking about the son the word which down in verse 14 became flesh now in genesis we have 6 and 7 days we have god restoring a ruined creation now i'm getting i'm not necessarily getting ahead of myself i'm kind of laying a foundation for what i'm going to do in a little bit when i go back to the book of genesis and go through the first chapter and show you how God brought this about and show you why that this should be looked upon as a restoration of a ruined creation, not as so many believe and teach that this is how God created the earth, that is, looking upon Genesis 1-1 as a grand summary, then explaining, beginning in verse 2, the grand summary, that is, they look upon the first chapter as creation only not creation, ruin, restoration, then a time of rest following the six days of restoration. And I'm going to go back, and we're going to spend some time looking at that in a little bit, but I want to somewhat present the uh, overall picture and uh, lay uh, uh, the gospel of John down alongside the uh, book of Genesis, and then we're going to go over to First John before I do this. And I'll spend a little bit of time with you tonight on these uh, three books and uh, more time, perhaps, well, uh, more, uh, more time for sure when we get back to the first chapter of Genesis. It'll be a little bit before we get back there. All right. In John's in, uh, well, let me say something about Genesis, and we're going to uh, stay, stay where you are in uh, John. But uh, as I said, uh, Genesis, you have a restoration over six days' time then a day of rest that's the first 34 verses now do we have that same thing in john's gospel well sure we have exactly the same thing starts out the same way it talks about in beginning god created but it explains a little more about it provides added commentary all right how do we get from day one to day two before i uh, tell you that uh, or show you that. Let me say this about the restoration process in the two books. The restoration in Moses, that is in Genesis, is a restoration of a ruined material creation. The restoration in John's gospel is centered more on another ruined creation and that is man. Read on down. We stopped with verse three. Let's keep on reading just a minute. Verse four in John one, in him was life, and the life was the light of the men. men. The light shineth in darkness, the darkness comprehended it not. And there was a man sent from John. Now note something that John says on down in the chapter. Look at verse twenty nine. In fact, this will fit right into what I want to show you about day one, day two, three, four, and so forth. We've been in day one until you get down to verse 29. The next day, that takes you into day two. John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now we're in day two. We're talking about man's restoration. Man has been ruined because of sin. So Genesis The restoration there centers on a ruined material creation. The restoration here centers on ruined man. And both have to be restored out ahead. Now, true, the the material creation has been brought into a ruined state again because of man's sin. That is, the earth under a curse. Man has sinned. Man has fallen. And God's going to have to restore both before man can rule and reign over the earth. Now, in verse 35, I want to read 35 and 6. I want to show you something in both verses. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples. Now we're in day three. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, again, it's behold the Lamb of God. But there's a different verb used here for looking. It's in fact, well, it's really the same, but it's intensified through a preposition. Well, it's not a preposition, a little E-M, M. Blepo is the word uh, looking, but this one has an emphasis or it a, a little EM on the front of the word. It's pronounced Mblepo, and that intensifies the word. Now, what you have here is John first looking upon Jesus, calling it and just uh, noting, uh, denoting uh, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Then, when we move into day three, he really looks him over. This is not just a casual look. This is exactly the same word that's used when Christ looked upon Peter after Peter had done exactly what Christ told him he was going to do, deny uh, his master. And after he had denied him several times as Christ said he would, then Christ looked upon him in an intensely searching manner, looked right through him, so to speak, and Peter saw it, and he went out and wept bitterly. Same word that's used here. John really looked the man over and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away, uh, well, he said taketh away the sin of the world previously. I was about to add that. Now, go down to verse 43. Verse 43. The day following, that takes you into day four. How do we get to day seven? Well, we got the chapter break in the wrong place again. Should be down after verse 12 in chapter two. I often wonder how they arrived at these chapter breaks. It's almost, uh, I read something about uh, a description of, uh, I forget now what it was all about, had to do with neo orthodoxy years ago, I believe. Uh, It was a a man uh, trying to ride a horse in two directions at the same time and contending that was the only way to ride a horse. Now that may be the way these men set the chapter breaks. I have no idea, but it's in the wrong place here. The book's in the wrong part of the Bible. The whole thing's just all all messed up. Like I said, uh, John should start out the New Testament because it's the genesis of the New Testament. And Genesis is the Gospel of John of the Old Testament, if you want to look at it that way. Both introduce the two testaments via moving through six days of restoration with a seventh day in view. Now, I said, how do we get to the seventh day? We're in the fourth day. Well, if you ignore the chapter break, go on into verse 1 of chapter 2 and the third day. That takes you into the seventh day. What happens on the third day? Well, it tells you there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. This is the first of eight signs. It has to do with God's restoration of Israel. How do I know that? Well, I know that these signs have to do with Israel. It's a Jew who requires a sign. A Gentile doesn't require a sign. The whole Gospel of John, it tells you why it's written out in the in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. But these are written. They're written to the Jew that you might know, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you might have life through his name. It was written to Jews, saved Jews. Now, are you getting that? It wasn't written to unsaved Jews. You had a generation of saved Jews living on both sides of Calvary. You had Christ came to individuals capable of spiritual perception. He didn't come to an unsaved generation of Jews. And he didn't come saying, believe on me and you can have eternal life. He came offering to a saved generation of Jews the kingdom of the heavens and that same generation existed on the other side of Calvary. Just because of Calvary, that didn't unsave them. They existed on the other side of Calvary. And for about 30 years until that generation passed off the scene, there was a continued offer of the kingdom to this generation of Jews. Or you can call it a reoffer of the kingdom. But once that generation began to pass off the scene, then... The offer had, uh, that is, the offer to the Jews had to cease because there was no saved generation on the scene. Now, in the Gospels, you find signs, sign after sign after sign, directed to the Jew that they might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would rule and reign. He's offering the kingdom to Israel. And that's exactly the same reason for these eight signs in John's gospel to the same generation of Jews that they might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life, not eternal life, but life. Out in what is in view, the kingdom is in view. And this first sign in John's gospel has to do with what will occur on the seventh day On the Sabbath day, the same day seen in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, that day of rest out ahead, it is God restoring his adulterous wife, following repentance, following their receiving him. He'll restore them to the land, and it is God remarrying. You see, he has divorced Israel because of her adultery. And he will have to remarry Israel, and that's exactly what's in view in this sign. And it will occur on the seventh day. So do you see how these two books fit together? How they both introduce each testament, Genesis the Old Testament, John the New Testament. And you follow these signs through, you follow the types through Genesis, and you'll find that they both deal with exactly the same thing. They deal with the Jews present, the Jews brought out of that state, out in that coming day when God will restore Israel. And Israel will rule, be placed at the head of the nations, and God will bless the nations through Israel. Turn over to John's uh, epistle, first epistle. Now, John states a matter just a little bit different. Notice uh, the way John's epistle starts out. That which was from, not the beginning, but just that which was from beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, we've seen it, bear witness, show unto you that... Now. Eternal life. Uh, I was talking with a man uh, earlier today, and we were talking about the words "ion," "ionius." The, those are the Greek words that are uh, would be translated "eternal." One's a noun, the other's an adjective in the Greek. And here, the adjective would be used: "ionius, eternal." Really, in the Greek, in the Greek language, you don't have a word for "eternal." The Greek uh, you would. Uh, in the uh, really you move two thousand years back and in the the, the uh, language used by the hebrews the language used by the greeks they didn't have the concept of eternal really in their language they looked to uh, olam in the old testament that is the hebrew has to do with a long period of time now that long period of time could stretch into eternity that's very true but they had in their minds a concept of a long period of time, an age, that type of thought. And I sometimes question if we should ever translate either one of those words, our Olam in the Old Testament, as eternal, because they didn't really have that concept within their language. And we're, we're using a word that we use today quite often in English and translating a word which doesn't really, or words that don't really uh, mean that, out of the Greek, and it gets very confusing. But at any rate, the thought more is life relative to the age out ahead when you run across this, especially in John's gospel, because it's a gospel directed to Christians, and it has to do with things related to the coming kingdom, as most of the New Testament has to do with. And most of the Old Testament has to do with the same thing, though you might say directed more to the nation of Israel. But uh, let's, let's go on and not uh, belabor that point, uh, that uh, life which was from the Father was ma- manifested unto us. In verse 3, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is what I was talking about this morning, uh, just for a brief period when we were leaving, going to have fellowship. I call your attention to what John had done here. He was making known that which they had seen, handled, in order that others might have fellowship with them not a horizontal type fellowship but a vertical their fellowship was with the father now the word fellowship means like minded they were being biblical fellowship is in the word and it's being it's with the father with his son it's being like minded with them and here's their mind right here all you have to do is be like minded with god be like be believe his word you can have fellowship with the Father, with His Son. It's a little bit like uh, two used car dealers. Now, they can have a form of fellowship. It's not biblical fellowship. Now, I used a couple of, I say, used car dealers. I like to kind of, I don't. I hope we don't have a used car dealer here. You think of used car dealers, man, dishonest. Well, any car dealer, just about. Uh, we bought a, my wife and I bought a car the other day, and I went to, I started talking to this uh, man that a friend, a longtime friend of mine, had uh, recommended. He says he's the only honest car dealer in town. And I told him why I'd come down. I heard you were the only honest car dealer in town. I came down to see. I can't believe it, but I'll take it. I'll try. And he turned out to be pretty honest. But uh, a couple of car dealers can uh, uh, have fellowship about. Uh, a car deal, honest, dishonest, as long as they're like-minded about it, you see. But that's not biblical fellowship. That's You see, biblical fellowship's in the Word, and it's with his father, with his son. Now, in the sense of horizontal fellowship, that is, one Christian with another, that's only possible in a biblical sense if both are in tune with the father and with his son, having fellowship uh, vertically, then you can have it horizontally, never the reverse. You don't have fellowship going out here and drinking a cup of tea and, uh, disp- and not even dealing with the word and that, uh, that type thing. Fellowship, true fellowship is in this book. It's like-minded right here. With the father, with his son. Now, I'll not, uh, I'll not read the rest of this first chapter. What we get into when we get beyond that, we get into, uh, well, let's use First 1 John 1, nine. I want to deal with 1 John just a little bit and kind of give you an idea of what the book is about. Uh, this book is not written to tell a lost person how to be saved. That's not the idea at all of 1 John. It's written to save people. It starts out having to do with fellowship. Then it moves into the thought of confession of sin. That would take you down to verses 8 and 9. If we confess our sins. Now, and really confess is to say the same thing that God says about it. He says they wrong, put them out. Uh, that word confess, uh, let me just give you a little understanding of it. In the Greek text, is hama lego. Lego is to say, hama is to say, uh, it's uh, the same thing. You put these two words together. Hama is like, uh, now, you put them together, and uh, it's to say the same thing. That God says about sin, you see, that's what the word really means that we translate confess. So you're saying the same thing, and if you do that, God, of course, God says sin is wrong. It's all wrong. Put it out of your life. That's the idea behind it. Then he'll be faithful and just to forgive you of that which you've put out. Now, leading into this, you have a somewhat a picture of the tabernacle. And uh, the one walking in the light, or the one walking in darkness—two different things. If we say that we walk in light, if we say that we're in the light and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. What's that? Uh, what's that talking about? I mentioned the tabernacle. Well, the tabernacle—you uh, entered into the door when an Israelite entered into the door on the east, and the brazen altar was there. That's where the sacrifice occurred. Well, we moved beyond that. We believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We have received the sacrifice which God provided. Now we're out here in the courtyard. There's a brazen laver in the courtyard. The light is in the holy place, the seven-leafed golden candelabra, the uh, table of showbread, the altar of incense back against the veil. And an individual couldn't bypass the laver. It had upper and lower parts. For washing the hands and the feet. The priests, they became defiled as they ministered between the altar and the holy place on behalf of Israelites. And they had to stop and wash their hands and feet between the two points. Before they could enter in where the light was. Now, with that typology in mind, look at verses 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. Where's Darkness. Well, darkness is not in the holy pl- uh, place, it's on the outside in the courtyard. If you say you're inside and you haven't washed your hands and feet, you're a liar, you see. And then it goes on into the idea of washing in verses uh, 8 9, a confession of sin. Then in chapter 2, it moves into the thought of. Uh, the mercy seat, uh, Christ, our mercy seat, His blood's on the mercy seat, things of that nature. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time here, but let me let me just say something. Uh, at uh, well, let me let me uh, look at verses uh, three and four in chapter two. These verses are misused so often. Now, I'm going to have to uh, run a little bit on uh, the Greek text here, but uh, I think you can stay with me verses 3 and 4 I'll just read them like they are and then I'm going to go back and go over them and uh, and use the Greek text some. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. I've heard evangelists, well I'm thinking of one in particular, came to a town where I lived and he homed in on these two verses and uh, tried to teach the people or uh, tried not necessarily to teach but to convince them if they weren't uh, acting in accord with these verses they'd never been saved and they need to come down and be saved. Well, this has nothing to do with being saved. It has to do with what it's uh, uh, stated prior to that. It really has to do with fellowship. It has to do with confession of sin. It has to do with Living the type of life that you should be living, not living out here in the darkness, but in the light. Now look at verses three and four again. Let me, get, let me explain a little bit. And hereby we are knowing, or we do we do know that's a present tense. It's something that's continuing that we now that's a perfect tense. See they're kind of the same way in the English, but one's a present, the other's perfect. Well, what's the difference? A present is showing a linear tense in this case. It doesn't always do this. Uh, It depends on the context, but the context here, it would be linear. And hereby, we, we are knowing, you might say, that we literally have known him. Now, perfect has to do with something which is completed in past time, exists during present time in a completed state. With that in mind. And hereby, I'm reading it again, and hereby we are presently knowing that we have known him past time, presently existing in a knowing state, if we keep his commandments. Now he that saith, I have known him in a past time, existing that way, and does not keep his commandments, that is a present, is not presently keeping, is a liar, the truth is not in him. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying a Greek lesson here or something. I just want to show you that this has nothing to do with being uh, a lost person being saved. In fact, if you try to find the uh, salvation message for unsaved people in the Gospel of John, or the 1st uh, John, rather, you might be hard-pressed to do it. Now, on over in some verses in the latter part, well, middle of the 5th chapter, you could use these because it is the same thing you tell an unsaved person, but really they're verses directed to save people now I want to say one other thing about the first John before we get back to Genesis and that's where we're going after I say some things it'll take it might take five minutes it might not the it's the expression uh, brought forth or born from above that's used in 1 John, it's used 10 times in 1 John. It's used more in this book than any other one book. For example, go over to the fifth chapter. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ. Well, that, is, uh, that sounds like John 20, 30 and 31. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You see, there's one usage of it. Uh, verse 4, whosoever is born of God. What's this talking about? Being uh, born of God. Here, John is writing to save people, and ten different times, I've just called your attention to two of them, he talks about being born of God. Now, it's interesting to read the commentaries at this point because they recognize that this is a book written to save people and they try to do a flip-flop and deal with the, with an unsaved person at certain points, back to saved to unsaved. That's not the picture at all. There are two realms from which an individual can be brought forth. i make this statement. Now, you'll think I'm a real heretic when I make this statement, but let me call your attention to something, then I'll make it. The Gospel of John, you have... Uh, in first chapter and in the third chapter, you have references to being brought forth from above. You don't have any, any in the Pauline epistles as such. You have uh, ten in this book. You have a couple in uh, uh, First Peter, I believe it is, and maybe one in James. Now, the statement. None of those refer to unsaved people being brought forth from above, but now that I've said that, That's the only way that an unsaved person can be saved is brought forth from love. There's no other way. But the thing is, Scripture doesn't use that expression relative to the salvation of an unsaved person. It uses that expression relative to the saved. It's a little bit like salvation of the soul. Well, really, it has to do with the salvation of the soul. But it's a little bit like they use the expression salvation of the soul. It never has to do with the unsaved being saved, but it's used that way all the time. And uh, this expression is used the same way, having to do with the saving of the soul. And it never has to do with the unsaved. It always has to do with the saved. But in this case, this is the only way an unsaved person can be saved. He has to be brought forth from above. But again, Scripture doesn't use the expression that way. Now... All right now that now that i've said that let 's what are we talking about being brought forth from above well there's only two realms there's an above realm there's a below realm. you can be brought forth a Christian can be brought forth now being brought forth, you see people always think of a birth a birth no that 's not what we 're talking about here we're talking about a bring a bring, your the spirit of God is. Teaching you this book. You're being brought forth, you're relying upon Him. It's a bringing forth from above. Or you can go out into the world and you're being brought forth from below. That's your picture here. Now, there is no middle ground. He that gathereth with me scattereth. There's no middle ground. There's no fence. There's there's no such thing as a fence rider in Scripture. Now, we have a lot of fence riders, or so we speak. Around, but true, But in reality, there is no such thing. If you're not for Christ, you're against Christ. If you're not being brought forth from above, you're being brought forth from below. Now let that sink in a little bit, because I mean, you're treading on dangerous ground if you're not being brought forth from above. You see. Stay in this book, continually be being brought forth from above that's the idea in first John all through it now again don't misunderstand what I'm saying I'm just showing you how this expression is used in scripture but let me be quick to say that there's no way an unsaved person could be saved unless he is brought forth from above so let's let's just leave it at that now go back to Genesis let's spend some time in the first chapter We've looked at uh, beginnings in uh, Genesis. Uh, we've looked at the same thing in the Gospel of John. And we've looked at uh, in beginning uh, in First uh, John. And I've thrown in a few extras uh, for you to think about in, the, in, uh, in between. And I usually do that to get off on different subjects uh, when we're in, uh, talking about things like this. Now, in verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Let's take the thought of the earth was, let's leave was alone. That's the verb I want to home in on in just a minute. But let's look at the expression without form and void. Tohu wa vohu would be your Hebrew uh, uh, expression. It's two words with a conjunction. Tohu uh, wa is conjunct vohu. Now, there are only three places in all of the Old Testament where these two words, tohu and bohu, are used together. This is one. Of course, the first. How would the other two places, how, how, how would these words be used? Would they be used as they're used here relative to a ruin and a restoration of a creation, or would they be used some other way? Well, let's take a look at them and see how they're used. Then we'll come back here and pick up, and I'll show you this, uh, how this verb is used through this chapter. Turn first to uh, Jeremiah four. Jeremiah chapter four. All right, in Jeremiah four. I want to get down around verses 23 and beyond, but to get there, go back to verse 14. O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness that thou mayest be saved. Now look at verse 20. Destruction upon destruction is cried for the whole land. That's the land of Israel. Here's Israel out in harlotry, disobedience, other forms of disobedience, and the whole land. It's not only the nation, the people, but the land is brought into desolation, ruined, is spoiled. Suddenly are my tents spoiled, my curtains in a moment. In verse 21, how long shall I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people, the people of Israel, is foolish. They've not known me. They are sottish. That is, they're stupid children. They have none understanding. They're wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. Now, I read verse 20 because of something in verse 23. I beheld the, do you have earth or land in your translation? You probably have earth, just like I have. Well... Notice back in verse 20, the translation here, it's land. It's the Hebrew word Eretz. That's a word you might be familiar with. It's used quite often in Israel today. You see it in the uh, newspapers. It has to do with earth or land. It can be understood either way depending upon context. In beginning, God created the heavens and the Eretz. It's uh, used there relative to earth, but it's evident it's talking about the earth. Here it's used a little bit different way. The translator spiled up. It's talking about the land of Israel. It's talking about the people of Israel being sent out among the Gentile nations because of their disobedience or sent out among the nations in order that they might be or uh, come under Gentile persecution and the Gentiles through persecution, the persecution becoming so severe that they would be brought to a state of repentance. Well, it didn't happen during World War II when 10, uh, 6 million were slain. It hasn't, of course, happened since, but it is about to happen during the tribulation when more than 6 million will be slain. And they'll come under a form of persecution, uh, really without uh, parallel in scripture. They'll have to come to be brought to that point before the nation will repent and before God can take this nation and bless the other nations, the Gentile nations through this nation. But in verse 23, let's translate that land, because we're talking about the land of Israel. It's been made desolate, brought into desolation. And when we get on down, we're going to find the word again. It's translated land properly, but uh, translated land here, it'll make a whole lot more sense because that's what we're talking about. I beheld the land, the land of Israel. Lo, it was without form and void. It was tohu wavohu. Same two words from Genesis. The land of Israel became this way. It wasn't always this way. It became this way because of sin. And there's an allusion back to Genesis 1 with this expression. The earth wasn't always this way. It became this way. So let's keep on reading a little bit more. The heavens and the earth, they had no light. I beheld the mountains. They trembled. All the high hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man. All the birds of the heaven were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, all the cities broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. For thus saith the Lord, the whole, there's your word again, Eretz. Here it's translated properly, land. The whole land shall be desolate, but I'll not make a full end. For this, the land... Shall mourn. The heavens above black, because I've spoken it, I've supposed it, and will not repent, neither will I turn back from it. This is talking about the land of Israel being brought into desolation, and when the people are restored, the land will be restored. Now let's look at the other usage of it in Isaiah chapter 34. Now, in this chapter, we're talking about Gentile nations, and we're talking about the nation of Israel, of course, Israel in disobedience out among the nations. And when it's talking about Gentile nations, sometimes it'll talk about more than one nation. Sometimes it'll home in on one nation representing all of the nations. In that case, we have Edom, Representing all of the nations when you get down to verses 5, 6, beyond. Notice the latter part of verse 5. Edom upon the people. Then uh, down in verse 6, the latter part. Slaughter of the land of Edom. In verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, a year of recompense for the controversy of Zion. Now here, what we have here is... A destruction, and then there's going to be a restoration out ahead. This, the words without form and void, let me pick them up. They're down in verse 11. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it, the owl also, the raven shall dwell in it, he shall stretch out upon it, the lion, of confusion and the stones of emptiness. Here the words are translated confusion and emptiness rather than without form and void. But now the nations have been brought into this position and they are one day going to be restored when Israel is restored. The only two ways you find, the only three ways, well, two ways, let's stay with two ways now because we know how they're used in Isaiah 34 and in Jeremiah chapter 4. We know that they're used relative to that which is in an orderly state, being brought into a disorderly state and restored back to an orderly state. Now, if you understand how they're used, the only other two places they appear in Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture, how should they be used back in Genesis 1. They should be used the same way. Well, let's go back and see if they are used the same way by the use of this verb that I was talking about. And you'll have to look upon it this way, else you destroy the septenary structure of Scripture, else you destroy the way the Gospel of John is set up, having to do with man Created, then ruined, then with a view to man's restoration. That's what's seen throughout your six and seven days in John's gospel. You really don't have much of a choice when you get right down to it, other than to see that we're talking about not a creation in the first chapter, but a creation, a ruin of that creation and a restoration of that ruin with a view to the seventh day. Now in verse 2, and the earth was, now that verb translated was is used 27 times in the first chapter. I have commentaries in my library where men will say that there is no justifiable reason at all for translating that word as became. Well, there's as much justification for translating it became as there is for translating it was for the simple reason that it's simply a verb of being. You can translate it being if you want to, and the earth being without form. It doesn't mean was, it doesn't mean became, it's just a verb of being. But to get the point across and produce a proper translation and produce a thought as it should be presented as scripture presents it, and as you should look at it, you need was or became. All right, the earth, just let's leave it alone for a minute and keep on going and see how it's, see how it's understood. Other places, following this, and the earth being without form and darkness, uh, void and darkness. Now notice the next word in italics. It's the word is not repeated. It's just understood here. And the and darkness uh, being upon the face of the deep. That is uh, the face of r- really raging waters. Uh, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now we're going to see that word used twice in the next verse. And God said, let there be. That, uh, let there be, that's the uh, verb we're looking at. Not let there was or let something in the past. Uh, it's let there be. Something's about to happen. And there was, there's the verb used again let there be light and light became." Do you see your picture? There's the way it's used, the next two usages of the word. Now your next two usages of the word are in the latter part of verse five. And it's only the English text only translates it one time, but it's used twice. Let me read all of verse five and I'll show you how it's used and how it should be uh, perhaps translated. And God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were. See, there's your word, but it's only translated once. There's a double usage of it here. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, literally, I'm somewhat quoting Lupole here, who is the Hebrew scholar that most people turn to, in short, if they don't have loophole in their library, they don't—they're uh, missing something uh, in their library. They should have the two-volume Loewald set uh, on a Hebrew word study of uh, the Old Testament, uh, the uh, Book of Genesis. And uh, Loewald—I uh, could call him an authority on this. Uh, in that respect, he's the one that people look to. A Hebrew scholar. Here's the way he translated the latter part of that verse with a double usage of. Uh, this word, Hayah, that we're translating, uh, uh, trying to figure, oh, well, we're not trying. We're seeing how it's used elsewhere in the book or the chapter. Now, he translated it this way Then came evening, then came morning, day one. Now, let's just dispense of uh, every time uh, that word appears in a double sense right quick, and, uh, and that'll save us some time. Go down to verse 8. It's used double there. Then came evening, then came morning, second day. Go down to verse 13. Then came evening, then came morning, third day. Verse 19. Then came evening, then came morning, fourth day. Verse 23. Then came evening, then came morning, fifth day. Uh, Verse, uh, on down, let me get on down here. It's in verse 31. Uh, Then came evening, then came morning, sixth day. Then we move into the seventh day. Now, that takes care of uh, six to uh, twelve uh, usages of the word. We've already seen a couple prior to that. We haven't really seen one yet that's, used, uh, that's not used more in the sense of became than was. So let's look at a few of the others and see how they, they're used in this chapter. Down in uh, starting verse six. And God said, let there be. There's, a, there's the next usage of the word. Down further in the verse, and let it divide. There's the next usage of the word. Go down to uh, latter part, well, right at the end of the verse of uh, verse seven, and it became, or it was so, more in the sense of became so. Go down to the latter part of verse nine, right at the end, and it not was so, more than. Uh, it should be more in the sense of it became so. It's out, It's uh, something that came into being. In the uh, latter part of verse 11, same thing. And it was so, or it became so. In uh, verse 14, and God said, let there be lights. There's your next usage of the word. In verse 15, let them be. There's your next. Latter part of verse 15. And it became so. Going down to, uh, now I'm skipping all of these, then came evening, then came morning. We've already covered those. Uh, all the way down to uh, your next usage appears to be latter part of verse 24. And it became so. And there's a couple of more usages in uh, right at the end of verse 29. And it shall be. Latter part of verse 30. And it Became so. It's used almost exclusively in the sense of became, if not exclusively, in the first chapter. And commentators have the effrontery to say there's no justifiable reason for translating it became in the second verse. I don't understand that type of reasoning, especially in the light of the fact that tohu or vohu, the only other two times that they're used together they deal with that which was in an orderly state brought into a disorderly state and eventually becoming an orderly state once again i'll let you all figure it out i i don't i don't understand it if you destroy the septenary structure of this first chapter what do you have you don 't have it you don 't even have a foundation to build on when it starts out in uh, ch- chapter two beyond the uh, Seventh day of rest, when it starts presenting commentary. You destroy the first chapter of John, leading into the sign in the second chapter. You destroy all of it. Now let me show you something else that it destroys. It destroys what's stated on the first day. Let's just read it, and I'll illustrate it to you. In Genesis 1, the Spirit of God... Moved upon the face of the waters. That's the latter part of verse 2. This is the beginning of the restoration of a ruined creation. First thing that happens, the Spirit of God moves. God said, let there be light, and there was light. What happens in man's regeneration? The first thing that happens, it's all right here, right at the very beginning. The Spirit of God has to move. The Spirit of God has to do a work in that individual. And when the Spirit of God does a work in that individual, through breathing life into the one who has no life, what happens? Look at verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God places a new nature right alongside the old. The new has to do with light. The old has to do with the darkness. The light shines out of darkness in Second Corinthians. God calls the light day, the darkness he calls night. Now let me show you one other thing about this, and we're going to close for this lesson. Notice how God begins the restoration of a ruined creation in verse 2. The Spirit of God moves. Now turn over to Genesis 8, 1. Once God establishes a pattern, he never changes. And incidentally, he always establishes the pattern perfect at the beginning. There's no need, there's no need to change. Now, this is uh, right after the 150 days or at the end of the 150 days. Perhaps I should state it that way. When God closed the floodgates of heaven, the torrential rain coming down, we'll deal with this in another lesson. Torrential rain came down for 150 days. Subterranean waters came up for the same 150 days, flooded the earth. And at the end of that time, when God closed those floodgates of heaven, when He stopped the water from coming up below, waters had covered the complete face of the earth. God began a restoration process. How do you suppose He began the restoration process? He's already told you in Genesis 1 2 how He begins the restoration of a ruined creation. We have another ruined creation below those floodwaters. Again, the question how do you suppose God's going to begin this? Well, you have the pattern already. Let's read it here, but I'm going to have to correct the text. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth. Well, you say in Genesis 1, it's the Spirit of God moving across the face of the waters. Here, it's a wind moving across the face of the waters. Would you like to know something? The word in both that's translated wind is exactly the same word in the Hebrew text, ruach, that's translated spirit in the first chapter. Now, if you want to, this word can be understood as God's breath. It could be understood as wind. But more than likely or uh, really and in more in a, in a realistic sense, let's stay with spirit or God's breath in Genesis. You're going to have to stay with the same one either way you look at it in both Genesis 1 and Genesis 8. Beginning the restoration of a ruined creation. Whether it was his spirit or his breath in Genesis 1, it has to be the same in Genesis 8. The beginning of the restoration of a ruined creation in both instances. See what it does if you try to say creation only back there? What are you going to do with this? You run into so many problems, you don't even want to talk about them. And you... uh, you end up promoting enough false theology, you don't want to talk about that either. But let's close uh, at that point tonight, and uh, we'll pick up uh, with some things out of Genesis 2, 3, and 4 tomorrow. And uh, let me say this about this series. Tonight, I didn't really deal with Israel that much, but throughout the rest of the uh, series, the uh, four other sermons, You're going to see uh, that the first, especially the first uh, 11 chapters and moving on into the uh, remaining chapters going up through 19, deal very heavily with three things. Jew, Gentile, and Christian. And particularly with Israel. You say, but this is history. This is before Israel or the... uh, new creation in Christ ever existed. I know that. So what? Did you know that God placed the nations uh, following the flood uh, at at Babel when he uh, destroyed uh, that kingdom, which typifies that's the first king of Babylon, typifying the coming king of Babylon? Did you know that when God placed these individuals out in separate nations, that he did it according to to the number of the children of Israel hundreds and hundreds of years before they ever came into existence. How did he do that? It's all up here in God's mind. He knows the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. And he did it before a nation ever existed. And he can pattern his word after a fashion that shows you the history at the beginning and carry it forward and take it all the way to the end through the typology that he has built into historical, the history of the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to look at. Our Father, we're thankful that you've allowed us to look into your word. We're thankful for the depth of your word, the fact that it's all right there. All all we have to do by the sweat of the face, sweat of the brow, is dig it out. And I just ask that you might just move upon individuals listening to this message and uh, the other four messages that you'll impress upon them the importance of doing this. And uh, the gold mine that's theirs for the taking, but they still have to dig it out. It's in Christ's name. Amen.